Welcome to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken, where we talk about issues facing our Big Island community. Island Conversations, Sunday mornings on KWXX at 6.30 and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. Or listen anytime at kwxx.com. Island Conversations, brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916. Now, here's your host and producer, Sherry Bracken. Aloha. Welcome to the Island Conversations podcast. You'll find a new one right here where you found this one every Sunday morning starting after 6. And once in a while, we post bonus Island Conversations interviews that may not air on the radio. Most Island Conversations interviews do air on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on Sundays on KWXX at 6.30 a.m. and on B97B93 at 7 a.m. And they rebroadcast the following Friday on KPUA 6.70 a.m. in Hilo. And they're always posted as podcasts by around 6 in the morning. There are so many questions about COVID-19, and we are so lucky in our state to have our lieutenant governor be also a medical doctor who still serves at Kohala Hospital once or twice a month in the emergency room. I have found Dr. Josh Green to be very frank in our previous conversations, and in this conversation, he is also very frank and gives us the real scoop on COVID-19 and talks with us about some of the state policies. Let's get to our conversation, which we recorded last Thursday, April 30th, around 10 in the morning. Dr. Josh Green, I think we all realize that coronavirus, which causes COVID-19, is brand new, and every day new things are learned. People are so curious about a lot of things, And I so appreciate your taking the time to talk with us about this. My pleasure. It's good to have a doctor who's actually so involved, so thank you so much. Now, I've got lots of questions that came in from listeners, and the first one is, Dr. Green, Lieutenant Governor Green, we read about all the various symptoms of COVID-19, which seem to be increasing all the time. And since you have actually seen patients with COVID-19, people are really interested in what is this like for patients especially those who are in the hospital, the more serious cases, how do they feel? What are they feeling? And then what about people who are at home and have it? Well, there's a great deal of variation. One of the greatest challenges of this disease is that about 80, 85% of people have very minimal symptoms or are fully asymptomatic who test positive for COVID-19. And then there's that other 15% category, which end up in the hospital in the care of me or my colleagues, and they're super duper sick. And so It feels like often a very debilitating flu. If you catch the bad strain and you end up sick like that in the hospital, people tend to have high fevers. About 80% of people have fever at some point, aches, the dry cough. And the biggest concern is when you develop shortness of breath. A lot of people don't develop the shortness of breath until deep into the disease. And it's because the lungs get very reactive. The lining of the lungs, the cells there uh, are damaged by the virus. And that's usually the catastrophic sign that someone's in trouble and ends up needing breathing support. So there's lots and lots of differences. But one of the other challenges is this disease is only four months old. And so the four months that we've had to study it, we've seen a huge array of symptoms. Now, most people had those classic symptoms, but there's also a lot of reports of some people having the stomach symptoms like you know nausea, vomiting, that kind of thing, too. So like any virus, every person responds a little differently, but mostly this one's respiratory. Well, you know, I read a report in the New England Journal of Medicine. They were talking about blood clots that are causing strokes in young people. And I've seen other reports about blood clots. Tell us about that. The fatalities that I've heard people talk about have been mostly respiratory. 
Now, blood clots are a concern because a person can get a clot and then it can embolize. The clot itself goes and flies up to the lungs and causes difficulty breathing. So it's kind of a big problem. Now, a lot of the people that have had, unfortunately, catastrophic outcomes, and our number is small, it's 15 as of now in Hawaii and passed away, a lot of those people haven't even been fully assessed with autopsy. We just did the test to make sure that they did have COVID-19. The colleagues that I have heard tell stories about what they're dealing with are mostly what's called ARDS, acute respiratory distress, distress syndrome. And I'm only now getting the first inklings from people that they are worried about this DIC problem, which is disseminated intervascular coagulopathy. That seems to blood stop clotting right. And that's common when people have a huge immune reaction to a virus or a disease and their whole body starts attacking it. Sorry, you, you inherited a doctor, Lieutenant Governor, so I end up talking a lot of this stuff. But basically, that's one of the ways you can go down. And this virus has been problematic because it attacks a lot of different systems, including what you just mentioned. You know, I actually had influenza back in 1979, and influenza is no picnic disease. I remember for two weeks I had a fever and I aches and pains and muscles. So if COVID-19 is worse than that, I definitely hope I don't get that variety of it. Yeah, and we in the tropics have, have, of course, wrestled with different things like dengue fever. Also, dengue fever means bone-breaking fever, and we all went through that a few years ago as a concern. These viruses are they're a problem. It's why we recommend flu shots for people, because you really don't want to get the flu, and the flu will roll right through a society if people don't get shots. But that's what happened with COVID-19. There's a lot of concern, and some people think there was too much concern placed on this, but in this case, COVID-19 is a lot more fatal than flu. Flu kills about one out of 1,500 people, and COVID-19 has tended to kill more like 3% of the people that it afflicts. And concerns mostly are kupuna. There is no vaccine yet, of course. And what I've heard from the scientists who are working on developing one, that maybe next spring there would be one generally available. And I'm just curious if there does become a vaccine for COVID-19 is that something that we would be, well, not we, the state would be requiring for kids in school, requiring for teachers in school, cafeteria workers, since this is a brand new disease to which nobody has immunity at this point? Hard to say. I definitely have been in conversations with people both on the policy question of mandatory vaccination, which we've tended to not do in the state of Hawaii. Usually we get to enough immunity and we get herd immunity from our vaccinations for the most part. We are actually going to have a group doing trials in the state of Hawaii, and we're going to participate with that. So that's a good advantage for us if we happen to be one of the groups that lands the vaccination. My feeling is this. So many people are going to want to have no restrictions on their motion activities, movements, and so on, that they will get the vaccination. Kids, fortunately, have not been really badly affected by this. So the kids are the least of my worry as far as disease goes, but they may very well be spreading it a lot. And we're going to get a lot of extra background information on exactly who has or hasn't had it with these new antibody tests. By the way, there is some possibility, although it's it's very um, it's a hopeful position, which, you know, I'm pretty much an optimist, that we could by this fall get a vaccination. The team at Oxford is really advancing their work quickly. They've already gone through primate studies and it's uh, been promising. So sometime in the fall, maybe late October, which would be perfect for everybody because then we wouldn't have to worry about this fall having a secondary cycle. So if it actually is available whenever it's available, would you recommend that somebody get both a flu vaccination and a COVID-19 vaccination? Oh yeah. And in fact, I will race to it. I mean, me personally, 
count me first in line if I'm allowed. I, I will definitely want it. Uh, my 51-year-old friend died of COVID-19. She was a class president over at Swarthmore a year ahead of me, and he was a marathoner. This is not a guy who was, you know, in bad shape, was, was had struggled with chronic disease or anything. This is just a, a nice person, a very thoughtful writer who caught it. His name is Nick. And so we have to prepare ourselves. And I was saying a couple of years ago, I think it might have been in one of your programs, Sherry, that we are definitely going to face larger consequences from infectious disease rather than terrorism. And I really believe that has come to pass. So not that I ever sleep on terrorism, and I read my dirty briefings daily, but it is really scary to imagine how fast an infectious disease can take down a culture or an economy or people. So the future is to get vaccinations properly, to do them right. I worry a little bit that we're going to race to this vaccination and not have enough safety standards, but a lot of people are working hard at it. Number one, they want to save lives, and two, there's an incredible economic incentive for these companies to get something done. Well, you talk about how fast something like this can affect a society. I just look at the McDonald's cluster in Kailua Kona, where one person went to work sick, is what we're told. And as we record this, the Department of Health has said there's 36 people, but I know there's more cases today of COVID than there were yesterday, even though we've not gotten the official report. So it may even be more than 36. And that's a huge number for one person to have infected. Yeah, and I freaking love Chicken McNuggets, too. Which, so this <laughs> bothered me, you know, on a personal level. But it's fast. You know, it's really fast. And the cluster in Kona, and, you know, Kona was my home for many, many years. And I loved going up Laco Street and, and Royal Poinciana and, and seeing people and friends. It, it, it stung, but we all knew what was going on once we saw the studies, which is a fair number of individuals from the Micronesian community were working and in family groups partying and having regular life together, and unfortunately, a small, intense cluster developed. That was pretty much what happened in that one. The good news was, as we saw, you don't really spread it to clients or people you just see for a minute or two. The people that were spreading it were spreading, they were standing next to one another, and a couple people were sick for hour after hour, working hard. And so I give people credit for working hard. I really do appreciate that. But this underscores the reason that we tell people, absolutely, do not go to work if you're sick. Don't go. It is completely a mistake. And that'll be part of the other new normal. We're going to have a lot lower threshold to let people be home. You mentioned Chicken McNuggets. I have seen no evidence in anything I've read that COVID-19 could be spread via food. What's your assessment? And I don't think it's being spread by food. The enzymes in our mouth and our gastric lining and everything are pretty strong. They kill the stuff. The real risk is if you are spreading droplets, which is too close to even on people for a long period of time. That's why masks are pretty helpful, why we really, really make sure that healthcare providers have N95 masks, because they're going to not see one of us, they're going to see 50 of us. That's the reason we focus on that. But even basic masks, surgical masks are helpful, especially if you have to be out for grocery shopping or whatever, it gives you that one added layer of protection and it just decreases the probability that you're going to catch it. Not to zero, but way down. Well, I'm considering masks the new fashion accessory. Now I've got about four and I'm just looking to color code them with my outfits because I figure we're going to be in this for a long time. It's true, for sure. We're four months into what's probably on some level a 16-month process. Now it'll get better and better and better unless we get a huge surge somewhere in the fall. The probability will be that we succeeded in phase one. Today, in my mind, it's the last day or the ending of the first phase where we were able to suppress the viral load so significantly in Hawaii that we won't have risk of transmission between ourselves. Now, phase two will be the reopening of our economy, our 
Kamaina economy. And then phase three will be when travelers come back. So we'll be pretty safe through phase two. And I think people will, believe it or not, enjoy that phase because nobody at the beaches or parks except for us. And it'll open things up and we'll get back to normal. But then when we start getting tourists back and there is some risk that they may or may not have COVID-19, there's going to be tension. And so I think that it's going to be incumbent on us to really be serious about that phase three and not allow ourselves to have a surge because for this 16-month period, I don't want it to be bad down the stretch. I want us to come out of this with essentially no fatalities above our baseline. Speaking of fatalities, for I think almost all of the deaths that Department of Health has reported on, 16 as we speak, Department of Health has said that people have underlying conditions. Now, New York State has published a list of underlying conditions from which people are dying from COVID-19. Here in the state, tell us, what underlying conditions are you seeing? Because people are really curious about this. What's our record in the state? Yeah, so it's uh, a great question, actually. So COPD, or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, lung disease, is the one biggest concern. Also, diabetes and obesity, all of those, which unfortunately are, those are the chronic diseases of the 21st century, right? That is what we worry about most. Those are the individuals that have gone down the fastest and hardest. So people with that lung disease or diabetes have been at risk. There's also some talk about heart disease because the virus appears to cause an endocarditis, which is an infection of the heart muscle in some people. And if you already have had heart attacks or heart problems, That's why we're so serious about having individuals who have chronic disease and who are older stay at home. I can't emphasize that enough. That's really what has to happen. I got a question from a listener, which is fairly technical. And this is from a woman in Hilo whose sons have this particular condition. Her question is, for people who carry the G6PD, who have that condition, do you know how COVID-19 might affect them? Is there any sense that the deaths are more because of this condition as we get a vaccine or we get a cure for COVID-19. Will that be helpful for those with this G6PD? And I just have to ask you as a doctor, tell us what this condition is in layman's terms, if you could, before you answer what the impact is. Sure. This is an um, enzyme deficiency that we sometimes see in people. It's called an X-linked which means it's from our X chromosomes. Women have two, men have one of these X chromosomes, and men have a Y chromosome too. So it's uh, called glucose-6-phosphate dehydrogenase deficiency, and that's G6PD for short. What it does is if you don't have this enzyme, sometimes your red blood cells get messed up. And what are red blood cells for? Well, they're for carrying oxygen. And so if your blood cells get damaged because something triggers it, triggers this enzyme to cause your blood cells to break down, you end up seeing people not getting the right oxygen. Sometimes they get short of breath. Sometimes they get anemic. And what's the problem with COVID-19? Well, it affects the lungs and makes you short of breath. So you get a double whammy, potentially. You get your G6PD set off, and if that happens, you're having trouble breathing, and then on top of it, your lungs get damaged. And that's why people are very concerned for their loved ones. And it's not that uncommon. It's especially common among, in my understanding, it's been... You know, it's been 25 years since I was in medical school now, but my recollection is is that some minorities do face higher rates of G6PD deficiency. So I think it's a concern. I think that we're so early in the disease, we don't even have time to compare it to other, you know, other people that have had one disease or another, like sickle cell or G6PD or other things. We will get that study and that, that data and research over time. One of the reasons we've never studied these things as much as other main diseases is because they come and go. 
to come, and then he'll show up again for 10 years or 20 years, like SARS or MERS, whereas diabetes is always here with us. Colon cancer is always here with us, you know, those kind of chronic diseases. But when we do see people in the hospital and we test for them and make sure, we need to make sure that if you say have a rare disease, you mention it to your healthcare provider when you're getting tested or checked for COVID-19 because it will be very helpful not just for our care of you, but for our care of the next group of people that come through the door. A lot of listeners, and actually I know a lot of people on this island, have either rheumatoid arthritis or lupus, and they take the drug hydroxychloroquine on a regular basis, and that helps them with the joint pain and, and all that. I have a very good friend with rheumatoid arthritis, and she's been taking it for at least 10 years. At one time, there was discussion about whether hydroxychloroquine would be an effective treatment for COVID-19 or even a preventive. And although recent studies are showing that is not the case, they're asking, isn't there an ability to look at people who are getting COVID-19 and see if they've actually been some of those patients with lupus or rheumatoid arthritis? Have they been taking hydroxychloroquine? And has it in any way seen to prevent people from getting it since there's a large population of folks who have been taking it for other conditions. That's a brilliant statement. Absolutely. Under normal circumstances, that's exactly the kind of research that would be going on. But usually over the course of a three-year grant and everyone takes their time and they go to the universities and they get 220 people in the study and so on. In this particular case, everyone's trying to do those, those three years of work in three weeks. In the throes of the large surge, it's catch-as-catch-can on some of this research. And so you'll sometimes see quick vignettes in articles on six patients or eight patients. Even the scientific journals have waived a lot of their standards so that they can get a lot of extra information out very quickly. And that's good on one hand because we feel very good when we get data. However, on the other hand, you're going to get incomplete proof. And you don't want to you know, make major decisions based on somewhat incomplete studies because the sample could lead you astray. Over time, we are going to look back on this, and if they see that, like, 40% fewer people who had rheumatoid arthritis and were on hydroxychloroquine got uh, COVID-19, it's going to be pretty telling. Because those individuals are the very individuals who have chronic illness, and they could be considered to have some weaknesses. But that drug suppresses the immune response, and a lot of people think that it's a catastrophic immune response, which is what kills people. So, you know, I hate to be so blunt, it's just kind of a blunt era. You know, what you said about the journals publishing things early, the New England Journal of Medicine, when they published that report about the young people getting blood clots and having strokes, they specifically mentioned, we are putting this out there before peer review because we don't have a lot of data. This is a brand new disease. And I read a lot about this, and all of the journals are doing that, just as you said, to get some information out there. So if you're a doctor and you see something, you might say, oh my gosh, we're having this here too. Maybe this means something. So yeah, it's a quite interesting time, objectively. It is. And one of the things that I do a lot of the times is when someone sends me information like that, I have a group of people that are much smarter than me as far as microbiology and virology and such goes, and I immediately have them do a significant assessment of the recommendations. And they're fallible too, but the truth is they have a lot of training. And we have some great people out there in our state. And the Cancer Center has Dr. Carbone, who does a lot of advanced work. I put some of the plasmapheresis people and the COVID plasma question people over to him, and he's looking at that. You know, I went over and donated blood myself early in this thing. We were even able to chatter a little bit about the future of the blood bank and how they would participate. The coconut wireless is a unique scientific device in the case of a uh, 
catastrophic pandemic. It's really spreading the word and getting people interested fast. You mentioned Blood Bank Hawaii, and they announced that they just started last Monday collecting blood from those who've had COVID-19, something known as convalescent plasma, and that could possibly be used to help others with COVID-19. So tell us what you know about how convalescent plasma is likely to be used here in Hawaii. Well, I don't know exactly how it will be used ultimately here in Hawaii. I can tell you this. It has a great deal of potential. The way it works is you get the plasma from people, you spin it down, and the remaining essentially fluid, if they've already had COVID-19, their blood has antibodies in it. Usually the antibodies that fight back these kind of viruses because they just got over it, right? That means that if you give somebody a transfusion of this stuff, they're going to be able to fight off the infection themselves. The current recommendation, again, being very careful because there's so many unknowns, current recommendation would be to do this if and only if someone is in deep trouble. In other words, they are not doing so well. And that's the cohort of people and patients that we've recommended this for. I did, like I say, put that to an advanced lab. Normally, you have several million dollars of research support to implement something like this because it's kind of cutting edge. And we very rarely do this kind of thing, especially when we don't have evidence that it's going to work. But when you have something roll through the world and it's killed a quarter of a million people, you definitely think twice before hesitating. And there's a history of right to try medications when people are in deep trouble. And we often approve that stuff kind of quickly because... We don't want to leave anything on that field when someone sliced it on the line. No kidding. And a brief interruption to remind you, this is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. You're listening to the podcast of Island Conversations, which is posted wherever people get podcasts, Apple Podcasts or whatever. Plus, it's always online at kwxx.com and at b97hawaii.com. Island Conversations also airs on the radio on the Big Island of Hawaii on Sundays at 6.30 a.m on KWXX and at 7 a.m. on B93 and on B97 and the following Friday on KPUA 670 a.m. in Hilo. Today we are talking with Hawaii's Lieutenant Governor, Dr. Josh Green, who formerly served as a state representative and a state senator from the Big Island after serving as a physician on the Big Island of Hawaii and who continues to serve as a physician working when he can in the emergency room in North Kohala. Next week we're going to be talking talking about a different topic because there is life beyond COVID-19. It's our volcanoes, Kilauea, Mauna Loa. We'll be talking with Hawaiian Volcano Observatory scientist in charge, Tina Neal, to get a general volcano update, but also to ask her about a recent study published in Nature magazine by scientists, volcanologists with the University of Miami in Florida, who claim that The 2018 Kilauea eruption, which was incredibly destructive and destroyed 700 homes, among other things, they claim that the volcanic eruption was caused by excessive rainfall. That's next week. Before we get back to Dr. Josh Green, let's hear to our generous sponsor, KTA Superstores, one of the many fine stores that has been helping the Big Island of Hawaii by providing critical supplies during our shutdown. At KTA, local and fresh means you get the very best Hawaii Island has to offer. The grass-fed meats you find at KTA are raised without added hormones or antibiotics. Our seafood department is stocked with sustainable choices caught in local waters by local fishermen. KTA carries the largest selection of Hawaii Island homegrown produce. Our mountain apple brand is all local so you know it's fresh and delicious. Local and fresh always tastes best at KTA. 
Now, Lieutenant Governor Dr. Josh Green, now comes the best topic, which is testing. Everybody's clamoring for tests. And in last Wednesday's press conference with you, the governor, Dr. Bruce Anderson, who's head of state health, Dr. Anderson said the Department of Health wants to ramp up sentinel testing we don't understand what that means and what those test results will show. And then I just want to talk about all the different kinds of tests that are happening right now. That's a really interesting thing. And so we went around the bend a couple of times on testing because I, and, and I respect these guys, but I, I felt from the very beginning, and it turned out, I think, to be pretty accurate, that if we didn't test, we'd be working in the blind. We wouldn't have adequate data for our general to decide where to put resources and me to where to put ventilators and so on. So that was absolutely necessary. The Department of Health was starting with almost exclusively sentinel testing and just testing people in the intensive care unit. And that wouldn't have ever given us enough information to know to stop cruise ships or to lock it down for a month or two so we didn't have to spread from New York and other places where there were a lot of cases. First background of sentinel testing was based on those swabs that we did for flu. People got their nose swabbed and then we were able to run the same samples against COVID-19 and see if there was widespread COVID-19 in other places. And we found very, very few positives, maybe even one only, I think. Now, the next level of this is really interesting and promising because as of yesterday, we got approved to use the antibody test, which is a blood draw here in the state of Hawaii. We've all given blood at different times to get our cholesterol checked or to get diabetes to check your blood tests and so on. That blood that's drawn for routine work can be also used anonymously to do random samples to see if there's widespread disease that we've not caught. And so they can run the antibody test. Like I said, it's confidential and it's coupled in large batches so we don't know whose blood is which, but it can tell us then, okay, this many males over 50 on Big Island actually have antibodies and have had COVID-19. This many people that work in Kalihi at the fire station tested positive. This many women over 65 in Kona were positive. So you see what I'm saying? You can do an incredible amount of assessment and really quickly see, oh, okay, it's not as bad as we thought. Or even with that amount of disease in the background through this testing, we were okay at our hospital. So it's a real valuable weapon in our arsenal. And I'll tell you, my personal feeling is we should test 10% of the population like Iceland did and fully characterize the state and our percentages. Well, when you talk about test 10% of the population, are you talking about the actual test to see if I have COVID-19, which is called a PCR test? Or are you talking about the antibody or an antigen test, which will tell me if I did have it in the past? I'm talking about the antibody test to see if you did have it in the past. Because Testing of completely asymptomatic, non-close contact, people basically have no reason to be tested, except that we just all would like to know, they're going to almost always be negative. Now, if you test someone who has got the fever or has symptoms, okay, that's the right time to test. Or if you test someone who's close to them, again, very good recommendation to test. But otherwise, you're going to just get almost all negative. Now, if you test 10% of the population with the antibody test, it will catch, oh, I had some fever in January. I didn't make anything of it. Or, God, I had a terrible flu in February before Green was talking all about COVID every day. Maybe that was it. And so then we would know what our background rate is. That's more than enough as a sample size. It's kind of like a poll to tell us, okay, I got it. This is what was going on. So I'm very, um, I'm just really interested in overall how we're doing as a state. I suspect that we would not have numbers like New York. New York tested, they did their sample, and they found that 13.3% of their whole state and 20% of their city, New York City, were positive with antibodies. I would guess that we're going to be well under 1% for our total population. 
but that still tells us how at risk we are, what our level of immunity might be, how far we are away from herd immunity, what the impact of tourism will be if we're not careful. All those things are really valuable data to a guy like me who would like to make sure that we remain the state with the lowest mortality rate, remain the state that has the fewest cases per capita. That's the kind of thing that I want us to celebrate at the end of this, because I know our economy's going to come back. I, I know people are hurting right now, and I'm hurting right along with them. But I'll tell you, if we remain the healthiest and cleanest state, can you imagine what that's going to do for people's desire to either buy here or travel here? It's going to go through the roof. So I think that we are doing something that's important in the short term to protect our kupuna, but in the long term to promote our economy and to be smart. This is the kind of data you get from these tests, and if you don't do them, you're in the dark. So why should we ever be in the dark? Always be transparent in my opinion. As far as the regular PCR test, we've done, I think, around 30,000 in the state and had, as we speak, on Thursday, about 613 positives. So we are doing really well. But you talked about the antibody test as being sort of an anonymous thing where my blood would be mixed with others. I want to know if I personally have had it, and I bet a whole lot of people in this state would like to know that, too. Are we going yeah, to get that? We have it. Fact, effective today. We can do it. So if someone wants to do it, their doctor or nurse practitioner or PA can simply order the COVID antibody test at Clinical Labs of Hawaii and go down for a blood draw. And that's it. I actually, this morning, I did the finger stick test because I'm testing out some of the local kits to see what works and what doesn't work. And that's only a finger stick test, and it's 93% sensitive. But the blood draw test is extraordinarily accurate. And now that it's going to be available to us, we can do at least a 1,000 a day in-state, same-day results. It's a pretty good weapon. And we're going to get up to 5,000 from clinical labs for long, and I think the other per day. And I think the other labs are going to do the same. So we're soon going to have the capacity to test many, many individuals. And it's not an expensive test. I know money's tight right now, but I think it's like 45 bucks. And I believe insurance may very well cover it if people have a, a reasonable reason to get it. So... It's a valuable tool for society, and the new normal, even though I think we're going to get back to, I, I know we're going to get back to some normalcy, we'll start, you know, shotgun, hugging, kissing, and everything again up close, but the new normal will be to get more routine testing for infectious disease when there's outbreaks, and the same-day tests or the quick tests are going to be very valuable, because why wouldn't you want to know? Like, if you have your in-laws in the house and you're taking care of them, or if you have lots of kids or multi-generational families or a small apartment and you're all in close quarters, you really want to know what your risk is of uh, spreading. So it's time to get better on this kind of stuff. And that's what COVID's doing for us. Even if somebody had COVID-19, the World Health Organization and almost every doctor I've heard says it's not clear how much immunity one might have or how long the immunity will last. So how is that going to be figured out, how much immunity people have? And really, if I had it and I didn't know I had it, Am I now, like, able to go back to work, and do I have to worry about it? So talk about that a little bit. Well, that is one of the questions. Just because a person gets the IgG antibodies, which historically has always suggested that you've had a disease and now you have immunity, for coronaviruses, it doesn't guarantee that you have immunity. So the CDC, and I know because I'm friends with some of these guys and I talk to them routinely, they are doing special tests to see if it is neutralizing other infections, so whether or not a person is fully immune. What they can say right now with some certainty is that if you do catch it again, which is very unusual and rare in this circumstance, it's almost always a much more um, benign uh, episode. And so it's still very valuable information, but we would like to know whether you're fully immune. And that's the kind of thing that's going to be going on through the, the vaccination studies and tests. 
But right now, if you do get the antibody test and you come back with this um, this IgM antibody, and then followed by the IgG antibody, which comes a couple weeks later, I've got to say you're pretty well protected, and and you are not going to be at high risk if you're in the workplace or you're seeing a lot of tourists or even health in a healthcare setting. You're safer. So I'd much rather have antibodies than not have antibodies. Put it that way. If we have the antibody test and it turns out we had COVID, would we still want to get the vaccine when the vaccine becomes available? That's a good question. I, actually, I don't know. There will be a formal recommendation on that for sure. I suspect the answer is going to be yes. There's a lot of vaccinations that we've been inclined to give people, even though we felt they had some immunity. For instance, a lot of times in the old days, people would get a very light case of chickenpox. And you got some antibodies, but you didn't get full immunity, and so they gave us a booster. And so I wouldn't be surprised if that's what happens. Probably one shot rather than the two or 30 days apart, which is what will likely be the recommendation. But that's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. I just want to see the vaccination moving forward at this point, because this is a very critical time. And it's pretty shocking to watch the whole world pause for two months or three months. But I think that because everybody is suffering in some ways equally, we'll be able to reemerge and kind of pick up where we left off once we get through the largest surge of the disease. Oh, this is definitely a strange time. It's just it feels kind of surreal that we would be living through this. It feels like a third world country issue that we never thought we'd have to deal with. Yeah, it is. And it's challenging on many levels, right? Because it's challenging because it's scary and it's challenging because the economy is down. But it's also challenging because how accustomed are we to give a quick kiss on the cheek and hug people? And to put that in the rearview mirror for a time, it's very, very threatening to the fabric of society, honestly. It's a big change. And the good news is it will end. The challenge is what will the impact be along the way. I'm personally grateful, though, that Hawaii has not seen a large surge in peak. If we did get a big surge, we would have had trouble because we have pretty finite resources. We only have a total of 459 ventilators available and a total of 244 ICU beds, which can surge to 338. But one terrible cruise ship filled with sick people, one large homeless community or long-term care facilities got overwhelmed, you could see a lot of very scary scenarios. And so if I sound or feel like I'm being a hard-ass about some of these things, it's really because I care very deeply that we don't have a mass casualty. That's something we do not want to write into Hawaii's history. At the press conference that was actually yesterday as we record this, Governor Ige said there needs to be a quality testing program for businesses to reopen. What's the vision for how businesses might use testing or determine that their employees might need testing to be able to come to work? What are you hearing and thinking about that? Uh, Well, I think uh, definitely the ability to test and put out a hotspot quickly is important. And so that is a part of the quality picture. Uh, that plus tracing individuals that were in a business. And I also think, though we are going to open our Kamaaina business now, I-, I was interested when the governor said that because I-, I felt that I might get a little more pushback because that's really what I've been pressing for. And I think to bring tourists here, I think we really have to simplify it and get a test for people. And I think it should be the PCR test probably 72 hours or less out. That is a fairly good guarantee that we are going to have a very low viral load in the state. I'm having the, um, the epidemiologist game this out for me so I know exactly what our risk will be if we do versus don't test. But it looks to me at first glance that in order to keep us safe and not see a big surge within two to three months, 
we're going to have to have people get a screening test before they come to Hawaii just for this year. After this year, we'll be back to relative normal. There shouldn't be a problem. But this year, if we want tourism to not crush Hawaii with infection, we probably are going to have to have that mechanism. I think I also heard Dr. Bruce Anderson on Wednesday say that some of the antibody tests have shown that somebody who has had COVID-19 might still be infectious. Help us understand that. Yeah, that is a problem. Even though you've got antibodies, in some cases, people have antibodies to the virus itself, but the virus persists, even at a low level. So therefore, they're walking around, they're still somewhat infectious. That is the reality of this disease. It's not a very discreet thing where it's definitely over after five days. That's it. Game over. You're fine. There are some people that continue to shed the virus after two, three, and four weeks. Now, once again, the further you are out from your main symptoms, the less likely you are to have a lot of infectivity in you. But it just means it's not perfect. We're not working in terms of perfection right now. We're working in terms of uh, good probabilities versus bad probabilities. And the good probability is we know mostly, mostly that people are either negative or very, very low risk because they're asymptomatic. You add that to our society, we're okay. Remember last year in June, we had 950,000 travelers in the month. 950,000 in one month. There's some states that don't get that in a whole year. So we are uniquely susceptible, and it's not just from the mainland United States. It's also from Southeast Asia. So we have to be kind of super careful in this case. And if we are and we get the right testing done, which we're checking every day, if we're like that, then people will flock to Hawaii. I actually anticipate a large demand and surge this fall and winter because you can tell already that people are not going to want to stay in New York or in other big urban centers that are in the cold through the wintertime. They're going to want to come to a place that's safe. Changing topics slightly, the University of Hawaii Public Policy Center did a recent report, and they had recommendations for what needs to be done to get us to fully reopen the economy and really manage COVID-19. And we've talked about testing, and we've talked about some of the other things. Contact tracing which means if I have it, finding out who I've been with, who have been my close contacts. Dr. Bruce Anderson of Department of Health has said they've needed more people to do it, but we seem to have a manageable number of cases now. Are we doing okay on contact tracing? Can we use some of the state workers who are not working but being paid to do that? What's the future of contact tracing? Tell us more. We do need a lot more. So they have 44 people right now, but we need at the minimum 15 per 100,000. So that means we need at the very minimum 225 people in that department. And the CDC believes that number doubles when you have an outbreak, which means we need to bump up to 450. So if you ask to add positions, I've spoken directly with my good friend and and senior senator, Senator Schott. He and I are really focused on making sure that we get that right. And if we don't have enough tracing support, that we actually use the National Guard to do it. So there's a lot of action there, and we have to have extra support for them. We also have the medical school. The Department of Health has a much broader bench if they really decide to tap into it. So we have to have those extra positions, and people will have to multitask. Because most years, we're not going to have outbreak and contact tracing. But this year and next, you can bet we are. So I think that we have to bump this up well into the 200s, and there'll probably be people who take on secondary skill sets because they may very well have worked in some other part of the Department of Health, but now when called, they kind of become the on-call tracers. I know a lot of volunteers would like to do it too, so stay tuned. I think we're going to see a big increase in that department, and pretty much every other department is going to drop back a bit for a time. 
Well, this is pretty clearly critical to our success. And, you know, Dr. Anderson, Bruce Anderson, has said that if somebody has COVID-19, they often can have 30 to 36 close contacts. So it takes a while to talk to all those people and find out what their situation is. Oh, it's a lot of work, and they do deserve credit for that. I was pretty mad that we weren't testing enough people, but I also was very mindful to pay them due respect for the hard work that they were doing on contact tracing. So, you know, this is unlike any other situation we've ever had. So we do have to be mindful of that. There are lots of unknowns here. We've handled them pretty well. I mean, we've had very few people overwhelm our healthcare system, and that is amazing because, honestly, there's so much that we don't know about this disease that some people are guessing in the dark with treatment. It's amazing. But the Department of Health deserves credit for tracing. I wish they would contact test a little bit more, especially now that we have a surplus of testing available. But that's maybe a fight for a different day. I know that since you can have COVID-19 and have no symptoms, it does seem like there should be aggressive testing if it seems like there's a reason to do so if somebody's been exposed. But what about state workers right now who are pretty much, there are some who are not working till the end of May for sure. I've talked to county council members and state senators that their staffs, those of whom are not working, would be very happy to make phone calls to do something productive. What's holding up those people being repurposed? Well, the Department of Health was a little bit reluctant to take on people that didn't have a certain skill set to do this kind of work. And so what we did was we took a lot of the workers who were kind of on the bench or not working, and we moved them over to the Department of Labor, where they've now finally been able to correct some of the challenges and now are clearing 10,000 unemployment applications a day. So that number is way up now, and that's been pretty good. But I'll tell you, it is difficult in some cases to move people from department to department. So my team, several of our guys at the LG's office have actually just gone and volunteered over there. And, man, I... Uh, I want to see a lot of people be more nimble. There was a time back in the day where I thought I might serve as director of health. I'd been asked. One of the proposals I had on the table was I would like each and every one of my workers to be entitled to donate 10% of their time to go and volunteer. And that would have been the perfect circumstance to do that. It gives people a nice sense of um, autonomy in their jobs. And I think it would even increase their productivity. So it's something, again, for a later date. But I would like to see more of that. And everybody wants to chip in right now, I can tell you. So let's head that direction if we can. Lieutenant Governor Dr. Josh Green, we are at a point now where in the past days, both you and the governor have said we are definitely flattening the curve. What else would you like to add before we say aloha today? Well, I would say the curve is not just flattening, it is flat. Uh, it is absolutely flat. So I want to thank everybody, Big Island people, listeners across the state. You have succeeded through phase one. Phase one is a success. We had the lowest mortality rate in the country because of your efforts and because of uh, your strong commitment to what was a very serious order to shut down the state. Now, as we enter phase two here right in the first days of May, expect to get back to work, expect to see a lot of normalcy return, and know that the goal is through May to get our internal economy fully functioning so that we can let the tourist economy jump in in the summertime. So, just thank you for everything you guys have done. Continue to be safe. Continue to socially distance and wear masks whenever you're out and about or with people. But this is the thing that we can beat. And in 2020, when we look back and know that we didn't lose our way and that we now had new priorities, I think we'll be proud. So the new priorities that are going to come for what we value in Hawaii are going to be very important as a part of this whole process. 
That is great to hear. I really do appreciate your optimism. And I also appreciate that almost every day you post about a one-minute video on Facebook where you summarize the situation, and it's, it's nice. So thank you, and keep well, doing that. I will, yeah. If, if people are interested, they can kind of check in. My stuff is at Green at LTGov Josh Green or just the Facebook Lieutenant Governor Josh Green and I really welcome people getting in touch with me directly and I like sharing that way so if there's questions that people have they can get me right quick that way. Very good. Thank you so much Lieutenant Governor Josh Green. Very much appreciate your time. Aloha. Aloha. Great to be with you Sherry. And to our listeners thank you so much for being with us. This is Island Conversations. I'm Sherry Bracken. Until next time and for sure next week when I talk with Hawaiian Volcano Observatory scientist in charge Tina Neal, please let's all live and drive with aloha and stay safe. Ahui ho. Thank you for listening to Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Available anytime at kwxx.com. We welcome your feedback and suggestions at info at kwxx.com. Join us next week for another Island Conversations with Sherry Bracken. Brought to you by KTA Superstores, where you're someone special every day since 1916.